This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. President Trump's early statements on COVID-19 might charitably be said to have been made in the fog of uncertainty about the virus, about its trajectory, about its danger to human lives. But by February of 2020, there is really no question that Trump had been told repeatedly that the virus was in this country, that it was deadly, and that it was rapidly and uncontrollably spreading. And yet again and again, he promised it was going away and inferred and sometimes blatantly said it would go away soon. Trump has claimed he was simply trying to prevent panic. Behind the scenes, he's implied he was taking the threat seriously all along. His actions prove otherwise. Both in policy and personal practice, he ignored and even mocked the scientific recommendations for controlling the pandemic, including masks and distancing, tracking the infected, and frequent testing. But President Trump wasn't alone, as scientists called for responsible personal action, action that could help save the lives of vulnerable people. They were often ignored. And the result is a nation that accounts for 4% of the world's population, but about 20% of global COVID-19 deaths. Oregon State University political scientists Erica Allen Wolters and Brent Steele warned us about this. In their co-written book, they warned that the consequences of ideology trumping science could be devastating. That book was published in late 2017 a little more than two years before COVID-19 reached American shores. Erica Allen Wolters is the director of Oregon State University's Policy Analysis Laboratory and a faculty member in the School of Public Policy, where she studies, among other things, the intersection of science and policy. Erica, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. And Brent Steele is the director of the Public Policy Graduate Program, also at Oregon State University, where his research interests also include public policy and science, and where a long, long time ago, he was one of my professors. Brent Steele, it is very cool to get to chat with you again. Yeah, I agree, Matthew. Glad to be here. Erica, let me start with you. When did it become clear to you that facts were no longer in the driver's seat when it comes to the way people perceive science? Well, I think that there were some issues that we talked about that we covered in our book that I'd sort of been on my radar for a little while, specifically looking at the MMR shot and the erroneous connection to causing autism in children, which of course we know it does not. But how that study that was conducted by Dr. Wakefield and later discredited, and he lost his medical license over this study, um, really set off this era of people locking down into this vaccine hesitancy or anti-vaccine mentality for fear of something happening to their children, which was, again, uh, not substantiated by science. At that point, and you write this in your book, that the ways in which political partisanship impacts views on science had still been around for a little while at that point. I mean, like, and, and seemed quite starkly in the late 1970s and mid-1980s when this was when the Three Mile Island and Chernobyl nuclear disasters occurred. And and quite quickly, there was this partisan divide that emerged and, and is really solidified in the past few decades with liberals far more likely to be anti-nuclear power and conservatives more likely to be pro-nuclear power. Brent, it seems like 
there's not a clear or obvious philosophical foundation for either of these two correlations. It, in some ways, does it feel to you like people just set up on two teams and decide to oppose the policies that the other group supported? Um, yes, and that's become increasingly visible over this last decade or so. In the book, you know, we talk about this theory of motivated reasoning that, you know, people have their ideological value system and they um, basically just start reading things that, that confirms what they already believe, confirmation bias. And so uh, we've noticed with increased uh, political polarization that this is more and more evident as we until it culminates up the Trump administration. This is really interesting to me. I, mean, I think a lot of people know, like, like public opinion surveys often show a lot of trust for teachers or, and, and, and a lot of trust for the military. But scientists in these surveys routinely enjoy something on the order of 85% trust. But you point out in your work that there's a lot of distance between scientists and other members of the public on all sorts of issues. A huge gap in issues like requiring vaccines, which scientists say we should do far more than other members of the public do. There's this really interesting duality here, because on the one hand, people say, yes, we trust scientists. And then on the other hand, Erica, they don't always follow the example set by scientists. So what the heck is going on? Right. Well, I think that what we've found, and, and you're right, consistently scientists have been uh, very well regarded and trusted. Um, study after study sort of shows that. I think what happens is, is when it starts to become an issue that feels personal, that challenges our ideological viewpoints, that challenges our moral foundation, that's when we start to really have kind of a disconfirmation bias where information that just doesn't fit into our worldview or our value system, we just reject. And so it becomes very issue-centered versus sort of broadly speaking, thinking about science as a whole. Because I think you're generally going to get some really high levels of support for scientists and for science. But it's when we have to start thinking about how this affects us personally, our lives, the social policies, environmental policies, things that we think about in terms of our own values and views towards the economy, towards social well-being, toward the environment. That's when we start to really discern a little bit more about what science we want to trust, what science we want to believe. So we might say, I trust scientists. And then if somebody asks me about GMOs, I'm not even thinking in terms of what scientists say, because that's a personal issue for me. And I've made a personal decision or I've aligned myself with a personal political ideology. That's true. Yes. And I think when we're talking about certain things as well, it's, it comes down to an issue of trust, you know, about where your information is coming from and what scientists you trust with information. So when we wrote about GMOs, it was really and one of the things that's interesting is GMOs have been used for a very long time in pharmaceuticals. And that doesn't seem to come up in the same in the same way. It doesn't seem to get the same political salience as talking about food. And, and we should say this is not a liberals trust scientists and conservatives don't think this sort of goes both ways. Right, Brent? Oh, yeah. So, uh, you know, immunizations, which is one of the uh, issue areas we examined in our book, you know, so we're in the midst of this uh, COVID vaccines coming out now. And we're, we're seeing, as we found in our research, that on the far left, you have people opposed to immunizations, like uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. And then on, also on the far right, you find the same thing in some uh, rural communities in Oregon, Washington, California. It's not always so consistent on each issue. And this makes it into public policy. 
right? Like, like these coalitions of distrust because politicians in this nation aren't beholden to science. They're, they're beholden, well, conceptually, at least they're beholden to voters. And, and when voters are decided, even if scientists aren't, politicians are likely going to choose a side. Is that right? Yeah. And, you know, I, I have a, there's a quote that I like to use from a, a state legislator. This is about 10 years ago. It was actually a Democrat, but uh, was saying, lamenting uh, science and the policy process because it, quote, unquote, uh, constrained my decision-making space. Wait, the, the science might constrain the decision-making space? Yeah, that's what he said. <laughs> so, you, You've both been worried about this disconnect for quite some time. Um, Brent, I'm probably filling in the gaps of an admittedly spotty memory of my undergraduate years at Oregon State, but I think I remember you talking way back then about the widening gap between partisan policy positions and how facts don't seem to matter so much to politicians. Well, at least not so much as like chasing the increasingly hardened and polarized ideas of voters. This is this has been a slow and gradual process toward this place we're now in, yes? Yeah. And uh, when you were a, a student back at Oregon State, I was heavily involved in uh, follow-up to a Northwest Forest Plan, which was supposed to be a science-based approach to forest management. And when I was involved in that, there were scientists involved in it doing wonderful research. But at the same time, all of the different polarized interests that were involved, there was so much information coming in from so many di- different sources that it was hard to see how a lot of the science would actually be implemented in that process. Because on the one hand, the science says what it says, but on the other hand, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be practically implemented or or there is a practical avenue for implementing it under all of the different constraints and systems that policymakers and politicians live under. Yes. Well, there's lots of things that, that need to go into the policy process, not just science. There's other you know, local community considerations. There's other kinds of interests that come into play. But you know, most people think that science will make the policy process and policy a much better product in the end than, than avoiding it or ignoring it. Erica, you note in your book that in many cases, members of the public don't even realize that their ideas differ so substantially from what scientists tend to believe. There are a lot of surveys that show that people who, like, for instance, people who deny the reality of climate change tend to think there's way more debate in scientific circles about the validity of the research showing human causes for global warming. Can you talk about that? Yeah, well, I mean, I think what we have right now is just a plethora of information that people can draw from. And so by the advent of having more information readily available at our fingertips via the internet and everything is fantastic, um, it also maybe makes it a little bit harder to discern the information that you're getting, whether or not it's accurate or not. And so when we're talking about the issue of climate change, if you were to potentially ask people that are maybe more leaning to the right or more conservative, if they think that there's scientific consensus on on climate change, you know, research has shown that they said, well, not as heavily as if you ask someone who is more left or liberal leaning, that they would say, yeah, there's scientific consensus. And so the information and the news that we that we obtain and that we bring in, again, that we often search for that already kind of fit into our worldview or our sort of model of the way that we see the world reinforces these ideas in our head, whether or not they're sort of accurate based or whether or not they're, you know, an inaccurate 
statement. I wanted to give an opportunity or, or maybe push for an introspective moment here. I wanted to ask both of you, are there positions that you hold that don't align to broadly held scientific views? Like if I give you the choice between a meal that I tell you is genetically modified and one that isn't, or if I ask you if you'd like a new nuclear power plant to be built in the Willamette Valley, or if I give you a chance to be the very first person to get a new vaccine, would your personal position differ greatly from the scientific position, do you think, Brent? Well, I think, you know, going back to what we were just talking about, there's so many sources of information and so many modalities to get information now. And, you know, we get bombarded with this stuff. And so, you know, people use heuristics kind of to make sense of the world. And so it's all too human in a sense to uh, kind of gravitate towards those things that you uh, already believe. So one of the ones that I have an issue with, so it's over the over the last couple of decades, I, I love coffee and I probably drink way too much coffee. But when the <laughs> studies come out that show that coffee's good for you, I like those studies. And then when they come out and it shows that they're not so good for you, I probably discount them a little bit. So it's a normal thing to do. And it's and as a scientist or a social scientist, you know, you really have to try to, to think about where you're coming from and what your own biases are when you're doing your research or when you're consuming information. Erica, what about you? If I, if, I, if I set a meal down in front of you and I tell you, like, this one's GMO and this one's not, are you going to reach for them an equal number of times? What do you think? <laughs> well, I'll be honest. When, I, when we were working on this book, that was one of the issues for me that sort of struck out as like, huh, I had held some ideas in my head about GMOs that, as I did more research into it, weren't exactly kind of aligned with the scientific findings. So that is something that I had changed position on a little bit. But um, the other example that I would give is, you know, when the MMR autism connection was sort of prevalent, you know, that that where this false connection was prevalent, my son was younger and and, in having to choose to have him get the uh, MMR shot. As a mother, I was really concerned about it at the time, because of course, you don't want to do anything that could potentially harm your child. So he ultimately, I did you know, it was coming down to whether or not this preservative, Femersol, was causing autism. And so I opted for him. Maybe this is kind of mean in hindsight to have three separate shots, not the combo shot. So in that way, he would not be getting any of the Themersol. But that wasn't aligned with what science was saying. Just at the time, there was so much chatter about this and so much concern that it was really hard as a parent to feel that the science was trustworthy and that your child wouldn't potentially be harmed. So I think that, like as Brent was saying, you hit those mental blocks and all of us have to sort of challenge why we, why we think a certain way or why we are making choices. The overall problem we're talking about here, this disconnect between what scientists actually say and what the public thinks scientists say or, or even do what the public does in spite of what scientists say, it does seem to have gotten a lot worse in the past four years. Is that, does the research bear that out or is that just me? Well, you know, when a mask becomes politicized, I mean, yeah. becomes ideological, that tells you the state we're in. We have another uh, uh, research project going on that, uh, you know, a faculty member at the Utah State University, Chris Simon in political science has participated in with a variety of universities across the United States where 
we uh, have interviewed and surveyed lobbyists at the state level, so all of, all 50 states at the state capitol. We've asked them about the level of incivility and polarization in state legislatures, and all of them point to increasing levels of polarization. And obviously, science gets caught up in this as you know, you have uh, liberals and conservatives are, are less and less likely to come to some kind of uh, compromise or, or mutual understanding. So it's it's gotten a lot worse. When it comes to this disconnect between science and policy, you warned in your book that we were entering into a dangerous place. You, you warned this several years ago. And then our federal government and not insignificant numbers of people in our nation openly flaunted very basic public health advice, which is based on very basic science that has been well-established for a hundred years. Brent, you, you mentioned masks became political. It's, it's like a train was going to wreck and, and you guys knew it was going to wreck. And did you just feel helpless? It sounds sort of like a nightmare. Well, uh, one thing I might mention too, the title of the book was <laughs> was decided um, well before the Republican primaries and the election of Donald Trump as president. So, but we were identifying that trend at the time. And you know, a lot of the, the findings in our book are almost an understatement with what's happened in recent years in terms of the disconnect between science and, and, and policy. So we saw the trend coming then, but not not where we're at at this point in time, you know, with the with the pandemic and and all the other things that are happening in the world right now that we need good science and scientists involved in the policy process. This is one of those things that you want to be wrong about, right? That you want to have been chicken little and the sky is not really falling. Yes. A- absolutely. <laughs> yes. So what do we do about this? Because the sky is falling. How do we get ourselves into a greater balance between science and the public perception of science and then between science and public policy? What, what are the steps that need to be taken? Uh, we've been experimenting with what we call uh, KTANs, which Knowledge to Action Networks. And that's basically uh, doing working with communities, directly with communities, scientists, natural scientists, social scientists, uh, resource managers, and community members to design um, research processes that we're all involved in. So we have a, a stake in it. We have the scientists involved in the design and everything, and then we involved everyone in the in the, the research process. And then at the end, when we look at our results, we try to come up with some kind of policy or program that addresses the issue that needs to be solved. And so notions of, of getting people actually involved in scientific activities can be very successful. The other thing is uh, sometimes issue framing. Some of the research we've seen out West here is some rural communities, the term climate change has been so politicized that you can't even use it, but you can talk about extreme weather events and other kinds of, of framing of, of issues to get people to work together on some solutions involving science. Yeah, and I've been looking into different different fields as well, as has Brent, you know, looking at psychology and studies that have been done on, you know, how, how do we sort of approach this issue? And aside from the issue framing, um, which has kind of come up several times as a way to frame issues that, you know, really resonate with sort of ideological and worldviews. 
One study that I found really interesting is uh, by the researcher Khan at Yale University about scientific curiosity. And instead of maybe saying we just need more knowledge and more information, what they propose is that really we just need to try to figure out how to inspire people to have more curiosity, which means the difference being is that instead of sort of seeking knowledge that maybe already conforms to the way that you see the world, you just want to seek knowledge for knowledge sakes. You know, you just want to be curious about issues. And one of the things that Brent and I talked about once we were doing an interview earlier this last week, and the question was, well, how do we get people, you know, to look at the information as like what's real or what's not? How do you discern that? And, you know, really a lot of it has to do with when you're looking at sort of more traditional sources of news sources or journal articles or whatever, sort of where the information or where the agreement tends to reside most heavily. And so if you're sort of someone who's more driven by curiosity or or an actual interest, like, does my personal views align with what science is saying, then you have to put the time in to kind of go and look into these issues and spend a little bit of time trying to sort out where does it seem like most of the evidence is resting? And then maybe that will sort of lead the direction that's a little bit more about what's in alignment with what the scientific community is saying. So this is all on the personal level, and I think incredibly helpful. What about on the political level? I mean, what are the sort of systemic changes, Brent, that might help promote a world in which policymakers aren't so beholden to people who have diametrically opposed ideas that might not even be anywhere related to informed by science. What do we need to do from a systemic standpoint in our political structure? From uh, the previous state lobbyist research that we're doing, they the lobbyists were suggesting that in state legislatures that you wouldn't set people by party, that you would have them intermixed with each other so they would have to talk with each other and then have them eat meals together and talk with each other. And just simple things like that, just to uh, to have interactions so that there's not so much distrust of the other side. But that's maybe seem kind of silly, but that's uh, that's the kind of perception of, of thousands of people that are observing the, the state level policy process. Uh, I mean, that something like that might bring more humaneness into the process. I mean, it might sound silly, but I've, I've spoken to researchers who've done research on what happens to people's desire to collaborate. And success in collaboration, you know, as a result of sharing a plate of nachos. So I feel like this is this is not a bad idea. I think your lobbyists might be onto something. Yes. And, it, and you know, there are a lot of really good examples of that out, particularly out west on natural resource environmental issues, where we've set up uh, collaborative governance structures where basically when you sit people in the room and you say, well, where do you want to be in the next 15, 20 years? And there's a lot of consensus on that. No one wants polluted rivers. No one wants species going extinct. People want to have, you know, healthy food to eat and clean water to drink. And then once you get kind of agreement on that future scenario, then you backtrack up from there. Well, how are we going to get there? And of course, you know, the process or approaches are going to be different, but if you can get to an agreed upon end of where you want to be, it makes those collaborative governance processes work fairly well. You have examined the differences between public and partisan and scientific views on climate change, on GMOs and vaccinations, on stem cell research, and now public health interventions. Which of these issues offers the best chance of success in better aligning policy with 
science. Erica, what do you think? Well, I think one of them is, I certainly think that when we were working on the stem cell chapter of the book, that there is definitely more bipartisanship that comes into play on that because as you know, they, you had different advocates at the time, like Nancy Reagan, because of course, Ronald Reagan was dealing with his uh, health issues. And you have other people like Michael J. Fox, who were sort of out there, you know, talking about the benefits of stem cell for Parkinson's disease. So I think when we're talking about something that sort of is a human health issue that most of us, if we're not already affected by it in one way or another by someone in our family or a close community, will be impacted by. So I think that that's an area where there could be definitely some more alignment and agreement. And Brent, let me ask you the contrary. Which of these issues is going to be hardest to align the public policy with the science? Well, you know, one of the things I'm, I'm wondering about now, too, with getting into a year into the pandemic and the impact it's had on the economy and lives families across the world. I'm wondering if this may be, end up being a focusing event, you know, as immunizations and the discussion of them in the, in the popular press among and family members has become so prominent. And, and then the science on that has been getting so much attention with the different kinds of uh, vaccines that are coming out. I'm, I'm just wondering if that might lead to a little bit more consensus because of just because of the situation that we found ourselves in. We are unfortunately out of time. Erica Allen Walters, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. And Brent Steele, it's been a pleasure catching up with you. Yes, thank you very much, Matthew. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 1030 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. And go have big ideas.